Well, good morning. How sweet is it that we get to worship God in song like that? Pretty special. Well, my oldest son, Elijah, started school this week, which means for us at the Loudermilk household, summer is officially over, even though I know it's still triple digits outside. But uh, as I reflect upon the summer, and really our summer as a church here at Wayside, I'm just filled with gratitude. It's just been a, a wonderful summer. As I think about all the ministry that took place on our two campuses and all the ministry that God allowed us to be a part of in our city and around the world, it's really, really incredible. And the ministry just keeps move on, moving on. It doesn't slow down. Uh, Roger left yesterday. He is en route to Africa. He'll be arriving today. I leave for Africa tomorrow, and we'll be there the next couple of weeks having some opportunities to teach and preach and engage with some of our partners in Uganda and Rwanda. We have the, uh, the, the Peru team leaves the first week of September, and they'll be heading to partner with Meredith and Carlos Block in Peru for a short-term team. We have Perspectives class beginning Tuesday, which is still open for signups, and you can just show up the first couple of weeks without paying and check it out. And that doesn't even mention all the different ministries, activities going on we have here as a church. So it's just a special time. And it's really been special walking through the book of Proverbs. I don't know about you, but I have loved reading the Proverbs. I have loved preaching on the Proverbs. And I've loved listening to the other guys preach on the Proverbs as well. We had only intended this series to be five weeks long. But we enjoyed it so much that we doubled it and made it a 10-week series. And so, oh, right, clap, fantastic. That's affirming. Um, and so John Gordon's going to close it out next week as he talks about the fear of the Lord. But this week, I, wanna, I really want us to spend some time to look at temptation. And more specifically, sexual temptation. Not as much clapping on there. Okay. And I think it's safe to say, while sexual temptation is something that has always been an issue, it's probably never been more of an issue than it is right now. And I don't need to cite a bunch of statistics or point to a number of legal rulings to convince you of that. You, you are aware of what's going on. And this has led to an immense amount of heartache, both for those outside the church and those inside the church. That being said, lives being derailed by sexual sin is not something that is new. I mean, as we even like read the Proverbs, we must remember that Solomon wrote the Proverbs. The same Solomon who, his falling as the the king of Israel was that he chased after foreign women and then chased after their gods. So this should tell you how important this area is, and this should give you a clue into how difficult this area is and how difficult it is to walk in integrity in this area. And so as we open our Bibles this morning to Proverbs chapter 7, I want us to look at a text that deals specifically with this issue of sexual temptation and gives us some practical tools that can equip us to walk in victory in this all-too-important area of our life. And as you're turning there, just, let me just give you a little context. The book of Proverbs really breaks into two main sections. You have chapters 1 through 9, and then chapters 10 through 31. 
And one through nine is really the foundation for wisdom. And it takes the, the story really of a father talking to his son about what wisdom is. He's, he's, he's grounding him in wisdom. And one of the emphases in the first nine chapters is sexual purity. And so as we come to chapter 7, what Solomon does is he basically illustrates his point through a story about a young man who falls into immorality and suffers the consequences of his action. And while this is a father speaking to a young son, this is not just for young men. And this is not just for men. This is for everyone here. And and I would argue that this is even going to go beyond sexual temptation, but be practical to other spheres of our Christian life as well. And right off the bat, let me tell you where I'm going to go. In in Proverbs 7, I see three things, kind of three components, three aspects of victorious living. Really in any sphere of the Christian life, but especially when it comes to sexual purity. And each aspect is independent, but they're connected to one another. And these are the three things that we're going to walk through. We're going to talk about how walking in victory requires having kingdom vision. It requires having kingdom habits. And it requires having kingdom protections. So a kingdom vision, kingdom habits, and kingdom protections. Three keys to living, in the, living the kingdom life in the area of sexual integrity. And so this is how this story, this is how this talk is going to be unpacked. So with that being said, let's look at the first five verses of Proverbs chapter 7, because this is where we're going to spend really about half of our time this morning, is in the first five verses. And this is what Solomon writes. My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Keep my commandments and live and my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters you with her words. Now, I want you to notice, this is critical, I want you to notice how Solomon starts off. He starts by giving his son a kingdom vision, a kingdom mindset. And what I mean by kingdom mindset is an understanding of how God sees a particular issue and then an understanding of what comes if he lives in obedience to God's perfection and to God's standard. So it's how he is to live and why he is to live that way. He tells the son, keep my commandments and live. Live. You see, the goal is life. The goal is the fullness of life. And obedience is the pathway to that goal. It's the pathway. Not just an obedience that keeps us from harm but an obedience that leads to the fullness of life that recognizes that God's design is always for our good. Because for far too many of us, the message maybe you heard as an adolescent when it came about, you know, to have the talk or to talk about sexual integrity, the message may have been, don't have sex because it's bad. And if you do, don't have sex until you're married because it's bad. And if you do, you're going to get an STD or struck by lightning or worse. And that was kind of one approach, right? And then on the other side of the pendulum, you had those, some of y'all who grew up maybe in families where this was a little bit looser, and they said things like, you know, sex is great. Have at it. Just protect yourself so you don't get pregnant. And so you have these two pendulums, and while maybe little aspects of both of those have some truth to them, 
They fail to do something really important. They fail to effectively address the beauty and goodness of God's design for human sexuality. And neither equips the believer to deal with temptation in this area, which will surely arise. It's surely going to arise. In, this classic, in the classic French book, The Little Prince, I'm sure you've all read it, there is a magnificent line that on one hand has nothing to do with this, but on the other hand has everything to do with this. And this is what it says. It says, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them task and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. You see, one of the most common mistakes I see within the Christian life and within Christian discipleship is that we assign task. We assign task for you to go out and do, and and so you can do something for God instead of teaching people to yearn for the endless immensity of the sea, which is God himself. We We cannot forget to teach people the beauty of walking with God in intimacy in all areas of their life and how that is where the fullness of life is found. And victory over sexual temptation, excuse me, don't see those donuts yet. What is he talking about? Victory over sexual temptation that leads to a life of purity begins with a kingdom mindset. It begins with a vision, a mindset of how does God see this issue, and then a belief that God's design in this issue is for our good. It's for our benefit. But a kingdom mindset is not enough. It doesn't accomplish our goal on its own. We must develop kingdom habits. Kingdom habits that encourage that mindset and supplement it. Once again, look at those first five verses. Look at what Solomon writes. My son, keep my words. Treasure my commandments within you. Make them the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on your heart. Say to your sister wisdom, say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your intimate friend. Solomon says that to walk in victory in this area, it requires certain habits and commitments. And those habits and commitments start not in the head per se, but in the heart. They start in the heart. Now, it is important to know things. Hear me. Knowledge is essential, but it is limited. And how many of us make decisions in our life that go directly against that which we know to be good or that which we know to be true? We do it all the time. For example, every Friday morning, there are guys who come to church. They go to that room right there called the green room, and they stuff your bulletins that you get when you come on Sunday morning. And every Friday morning, this is what they're greeted with. Now the donuts. Now it makes sense. And every week, they eat about half of those. So when I'm on campus on a Friday, and I wander in the green room, I see those boxes right there. And because I'm curious, I wonder, what's in those boxes? So I walk up to the boxes, and I push that top open, and what do I see? 
I see donuts. Donuts. Now, donuts are terrible for you. No one confuses donuts with cauliflower, right? (laughs) Donuts are sugar, butter, dough, and it's fried. I mean, yeah, only in Texas. I mean, you might as well be eating doughy pieces of death, right? And yet every week with that knowledge, what do I do? I partake in that which destroys me. And I eat the donut. Now, why? Why do I do that? Is it a matter of knowledge? No. It's not a matter of knowledge. I know that the donuts are terrible for me. You see, knowledge is not the issue. It's that my desire for the donut is greater than my desire to eat healthy. It's an issue of the heart. It's a desire issue. And so for me to stop eating, it's not that I need to fill my brain with more information about donuts. I I don't need to get on Wikipedia and look at the nutritional value. But rather, I need to train my desires to desire something greater. You've got to train your desires to desire something greater. You see, sexual sin is not a result of having wrong desires, but a result of having our desires deformed. The great church father Augustine wrote that, that all sin comes from having our loves disordered. And that godly living comes from having our loves ordered. Where my love for God puts everything else in its place. My love for God puts my love for my family in its place. My love for God puts my love for my children in its place. My love for God puts my love for sex and sexual pleasure in its proper place. But it's a rightly ordered love. It's a rightly ordered desire. We must rightly order our loves. Because if not, then something that's good, like sexual pleasure, can flip upside down. And that which is normal and good can become destructive and can tear us apart. So we must rightly order our loves. And in order to do so, we must disciple our hearts. We must disciple our desires. We must disciple our desires. But how? I mean, how do you do that? Well, first of all, it's really, really hard. It's hard work. Number two, it's only possible by the grace of God. And number three, it is possible because of the grace of God and because of the Spirit of God who resides in his people. And so let me give you an example of how this may work, and and this is from kind of maybe a non-spiritual background. I have a buddy here at church who has food allergies, right? And so he used to love all kinds of food, fried food, sweets, you name it, he ate it. But he came to a point in time where he said, i got to change my diet because I don't want to feel sick anymore. And so all of a sudden he replaced the the pizza or he replaced the the candy, the sweets, with vegetables. He replaced the fried food with fruits. He replaced the pizza with like probiotics or something, right? And you know what happened? Not only did he start to feel better, his desire for the junk food began to dissipate. It began to go away. 
And we can go out and eat now, and they can bring, a, you know, a dozen fresh-baked cookies and, and put them right on our table, and he's not going to touch them. And it wasn't his knowledge of the foods that were bad that led to a life change. It was a desire of the heart for a new existence that led to changed eating habits that over time led to a new set of desires. When I was coaching at, at O'Connor, we would, we would have these sayings that we would say to the football guys all the time. And it's a little cliche, but, you know, coaches live in the cliche, you know. And so, at least I did. I wasn't smart enough not to, so I just repeated all of them. But a lot of them are good. And we would tell our guys, hey, you know what? Your attitude determines your choices. Your choices determine your habits, and your habits determine your destiny. Your attitude determines your choices, your choices determine your habits, and your habits determine your destiny. And obviously, this is a little simplistic, right? I mean, you can eat right and get cancer. You can exercise every day and die of a heart attack. We know this. But there's also a lot of truth in those statements. And I think that's what Solomon is unpacking here. He says you must begin with a kingdom mindset. And this is a mindset that shapes our attitude towards something. And we begin to see that the way God sees it. And we begin to see that the way God sees it is beautiful. And that to walk in obedience to that, the fullness of life is found. But that's not enough. We've got to supplement that. We've got to encourage that with kingdom habits. These wise decisions that form those kingdom habits that encourage the kingdom mindset. And there's really no shortage of kingdom habits that you can cultivate. But I would say they typically all fall within one of five streams or categories. And that is to fill your mind with God's word, filling your heart with God's love, filling your life with God's people, filling your time with God's mission, and filling your spirit with consistent worship. Filling your mind with God's word, that's a kingdom habit. Filling your heart with God's love, really basking in the love of God, that's a kingdom habit. Filling your life with God's people, the community, that's a kingdom habit. Filling your time engaging God's, wor- engaging God's world and his mission in a meaningful way, that's a kingdom habit. And then coming together and gathering and worshiping, filling your spirit with worship, that is a kingdom habit habit. Now, a lot more could be said about that. I mean, that's a whole sermon series unto itself. But as you walk in these endeavors, you know what happens? Your habits begin to, sh- begin to change, and then your desires begin to be reshaped. Roger often gives the analogy of that in the believer, there's the spiritual dog and there's the carnal dog, and that they go to war. And the only question that matters when the battle arises is which dog have you been feeding? Which dog have you been feeding? Which one's the pit bull and which one's the chihuahua? Because kingdom habits do not fall from the sky. They are cultivated. They are cultivated by a long, slow obedience the same direction. Now you may listen to that and say, Michael, that sounds like hard work. And I say, amen. And you may say, well, I thought the gospel was a gospel of grace. And I say, amen. 
Because it is God's grace that grants us a kingdom mindset. It is God's grace that empowers kingdom habits. It is God's grace in our salvation from beginning to end. And everything I do that glorifies God is only possible by his grace working through me. That's it. It's all by his grace and all for his glory. And as Jason, when he preached about the sluggard, he's exactly right. You see, I've never met a godly person who was lazy in their pursuit of God. I have never met a godly person who was lazy in their pursuit of God. And when the kingdom mindset begins working with kingdom habits, our desires often start to change to the extent where the spiritual dog is now the king of the hill. And yet even if that happens, you know and I know the carnal dog is not dead, is he? He's not dead. And because of that, we need kingdom protections. Kingdom protections. Because we all struggle. We all struggle. And so we must not only develop kingdom habits, but we must put in place kingdom protections. And so essentially what I want to say to you is I think we need to create something that looks a little bit like this. A spiritual bowling lane. Follow me here. The goal of bowling is to bowl a strike. It's to knock down all the pins. That is your kingdom mindset when it comes to bowling. That's where the fullness of life is found when you come to bowling. Your kingdom habits are how you hold the ball. It's your approach. It's your release. It's your follow-through. It's the things that you train yourself on that help you work towards that goal. But then you also want to put in place kingdom protections like these bumpers you see right there. And these are things that keep your ball from going in the spiritual gutter. They're things that redirect you, redirect you back towards your goal of knocking down the pins. See, a kingdom mindset combined with kingdom habits is a powerful duo. But especially in the area of sexual integrity, we need more. We need kingdom protections And so this is what Solomon's going to get to now. So in verses 6 through 23, Solomon's going to tell us a story about a young man who falls in immorality. And along the way, what we're going to see are four things that this young man did not have in place. And it led him to fall. But we must put in place to keep from falling. And the first one is this. The first kingdom protection is to avoid destructive places. To avoid destructive places. Look at verses 6 through 9. Solomon writes, For at the window of my house, I look out through my lattice, and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. And he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. You see it happening. It's dark. It's late. And this guy's first issue is that he has no business being there. He has no business being there. It says he takes the way to her house. He knows where she lives. And so he's just kind of wandering around, curious, hopeful maybe, that he's going to bump into her in the area. He's setting himself up for failure. 
And yet, how many of us do exactly the same thing? How many mistakes are made in life because we go where we shouldn't go and we go when we should not go there? That may be an establishment that you have no business frequenting. It may be someone at your gym or workplace that's an issue that you need to avoid. It may be someone in your neighborhood or your friend circle that's a little bit extra friendly. It may be things that you're feeding your mind continually and continually and continuing to give them life that are destructive. It may be destructive tendencies on electronic devices. Whatever the case may be, the point is he shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have been so publicly brazen in the midst of evil with such a huge target on his back. There's a fascinating verse in in 2 Samuel chapter 11, which is the chapter of David and Bathsheba's sin. And this is how that chapter starts off, and I want you to listen. It says, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle. And David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. When do kings go to battle? Spring. Who's the king? David. Where's the king? He's in Jerusalem on a roof. With his eyes going somewhere, they had no business to go. He shouldn't have been there. So much destruction could be avoided if we would just avoid destructive places and destructive situations. And I know you can't avoid every stumbling block that's placed in your path, but you can certainly avoid a lot of them. You can certainly avoid a lot of them. So you have to do do a self-evaluation. You have to be honest with yourself. Say, where do I struggle? What do I struggle with? How do I struggle When do I struggle? And then you think through how you can avoid those situations as much as possible. So if it's your electronic device that has the temptation, then get rid of it. Remove the internet. Do whatever it takes. Not because of fear or because of legalism, but because of wisdom, because of love, and because you fear the right thing, which is God, which is the beginning of wisdom itself. So number one, avoid destructive places. Secondly, Acknowledge the attacker. Acknowledge the attacker and acknowledge the attack. Acknowledge the attacker and acknowledge the attack. Look at verses 10 through 12. It says, And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner lurks by you see what this young man does not realize that is so tragic is that he's actually under attack he's under attack and he has no clue and in this scene the enemy is the adulterous woman but the real enemy is the evil one himself satan the one who's behind all that is evil and he is on the prowl he and his demonic forces we have a real enemy who is in opposition to God and in opposition to his people. And that's not something we need to obsess over, but it's something we need to be aware of. Because when I read the scriptures, or even if you just look at history, you know what's the most effective kind of attack? A surprise attack. 
a surprise attack. As a matter of fact, you know, when, when, when Germany invaded France in World War II, the British and the French thought they were going to go through the north like they had done in World War I, through the Netherlands and northern Belgium. But instead, the Nazis went through Luxembourg and through the Ardennes Forest on a path that led directly into the heart of France. And by the time the French and British realized what had happened, it was too late. And six weeks later, France was under Nazi control. And had it not been for the great escape at Dunkirk, Dunkirk, France, history may have been totally different. There's power in the surprise attack. And we cannot be caught by surprise. We must recognize that we have an enemy who seeks to destroy and that we are susceptible to that attack and we are capable of committing great sin. And that is all of us. All of us. I'll never forget my, uh, in college, my favorite pastor, my favorite preacher of all time is Tommy Nelson out at Denton Bible Church. And I remember I was listening to a sermon in college, and Tommy looks out in the congregation. He says, in 30 years, I have never cheated on my wife. And there's silence. He says, and you know why? Because I know that I can. I know that I'm capable of doing such a thing. And it's by God's grace that I am where I am. We must avoid destructive places. We must acknowledge the attacker and acknowledge the fact that we have a target on our back. Thirdly, and connected to number two, we must be aware of his tactics. Aware of his tactics. Not only that he is going to attack, but what does he typically attack with? Look at verses 13 through 21. It says, so she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I've paid my vows. In other words, I've done my spiritual duty. I'm, I'm clean. I'm ready to rock and roll. And I've got leftover food in the house. That's what she's saying. Verse 15, therefore, I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. And I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. And with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. So the adulteress comes at this young man with weapons that he has nothing in his arsenal to defend. He's toast. She's dressed like a harlot. She affects his eyes. She's speaking words of affirmation. You're wonderful. You're great. I've been looking for you. She attacks him with her words. And she attacks him with physical touch. She kisses him. And I'm reminded of Joseph, right? Joseph, who when confronted with Potiphar's wife, who was trying to do the same thing, he turned and ran. He had cultivated those kingdom habits that when that time came, he ran. He fleed immorality. And here we see this young man just floating right into it. We must acknowledge the fact that not only do we have an enemy, but the enemy likes to attack. And then we must be aware of his tactics. And notice the three pretty obvious and consistent ones we see. Sight. Touch 
and words. Sight, touch, and words. So we must be careful. And look, I'm not telling you to like remove your eyes. And I'm not telling you to like not talk to people. And I'm not telling you when someone comes up to you and gives you a compliment, you go, ah, no, evil. No. But you have to understand that these senses and that these are highways to your heart. And you must be aware what type of cargo is traveling. You must discern the cargo that's traveling on these highways to your heart. You must know the weapons. Fourthly, you must foresee the consequences. Must foresee the consequences. After she told him, hey, my husband's gone. He's not going to be home for a while. It's all good. Look at verses 21 through 23. It says, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. Not a clue. I think one of the greatest mistakes we make as humans is we fail to foresee the consequences of our sin. We're blinded to them. We fail to foresee the consequences of our sin. And I think one of the great lies we believe as humans is that there are no consequences for our sin. There are no consequences for our sin. But sin destroys, and you never sin in a vacuum. It touches everything. The young man was unaware of the the destruction that awaited him. May we not be so naive, right? Avoid destructive places. Acknowledge the enemy. Understand his tactics. Foresee the consequences. Kingdom protections for kingdom living. And though this young man willingly went to his own destruction, Solomon lets us know that doesn't have to be true for us. And look how he closes the proverb. He says, now, therefore, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down. Numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Solomon closes with a warning, but also hope that kingdom vision, kingdom habits, and kingdom protections can lead to to victorious living in this area. Now, I want to close this morning by just, just calling a spade a spade. I am well aware that fleeing immorality is extremely difficult. It's extremely difficult. And I'm aware that this is something that many people in here wrestle deeply with and are wounded deeply by this. And there's great shame and heartache in this. I know that there's many people in here who have been wounded by this. And I know many people in here who have done deep wounding themselves. And if that is you, I just want you to remember that your failure does not define you. 
Your failure does not define you. You know, the guy who wrote this proverb, Solomon, we've talked about some of his struggles, but I want to point out another thing. You know that he probably had pretty keen insight into the sordid story of David and Bathsheba. You know why? Because that's his mom and his dad. It's his parents. And I think we would say that the relationship between David and Bathsheba got off to an inauspicious start. Somewhat negative circumstances. And yet what ultimately came from their union was the next king of Israel. And listen to how God describes his birth in chapter 12. It says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son and he named him Solomon and the Lord loved him. The Lord loved him. God is never the author of sin. God is never the author of sin. But he is most certainly the greatest at taking lemons and making lemonade. Without question. And if you have failed or even failed mightily in this life, it is important that you know that that does not define you. And while sin has consequences which you don't have the power to overturn, I have seen time and time again the grace of God bring beauty from ashes for those who will turn to him. He has the ability to restore his people. There is a compassion to God that surpasses anything we can possibly imagine. His grace knows no limits. And he is always willing to take us as we are, broken and wrecked by sin, and say, that one is mine. And make you new. With new desires. Transforming you. A new creation. Someone who's experienced Freedom from the penalty of sin through the grace of God. Someone who's experiencing freedom over the power of sin through the spirit of God. And someone who will one day look towards that hope and looks towards that hope where they will be free from the presence of sin when we go to be with him in glory. God can make all things new. And he can give you the newness of life in this area. And we at Wayside want to continue to help you in this journey. We want to come alongside and, 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 and help you guys. And so we've got things for women coming up in the fall. Passion Pursuit, a special study for women as they engage some of these, these issues and experience healing and victory with other women in these areas and the newness of life in these areas. And for the men, we've got a new series we're kicking off this fall that we're extremely excited about called the Conquer Series where you can walk with other men and begin to walk in victory in this area and experience the grace of God in a deep way in this area of your life. And if you have any questions on that, email Brenda McCord, our women's director, or Stephen Lay, our men's pastor, and they can get you connected to the appropriate groups. God has made it possible by the power of his Holy Spirit that we would walk in victory in this area. In this area. But it won't come easily. And it doesn't come naturally. It's supernatural. And it starts with a kingdom vision. 
where you see things the way God sees it. And you affirm the way God sees it. And you know that God's design is for your good. And then we come alongside that with kingdom habits where we cultivate those habits that begin to change our desires. And as we put in place kingdom protections, where we place strategic barriers between us and that which seeks to destroy us and that which seeks to prevent us from living the kingdom life that God has called on us to live by the power of his spirit to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the truth and the love that just jumps off the pages of your word. You never sacrifice your holiness. You never do. And we praise you for that, God. You are holy and righteous and good and true and loving and graceful and merciful. And so, God, this morning we come before you. And if there's anyone in here who just is, just is continually beating themselves up and continually saying, I'm a failure, all I do is fall, all I do is fall, Lord, may they know that just by getting up, they are revealing their heart to follow you. That dead people don't struggle. But God, we are crying out to you to grant us victory in this area that by the power of your spirit and by your grace that we could experience victory in this and the fullness of the joy that you have for us that the enemy has sought to destroy and separate us from in shame and guilt and heartache. So God, would you cleanse us? Would you make a clean heart for us? And Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you as Lord, that they would now receive your gift. That it's not by healthy living or wise decisions that we become right with you. It's by the cross of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb of the resurrection, proclaiming victory over death, victory over sin. And that we are made right with you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. So, Lord, I pray your spirit would penetrate their hearts and they would see you clearly and see that you came for them. God, may we be people who know you intimately, walk with you faithfully to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.